0: Will you turn in your Bibles to Genesis 1, very first page of your Bible? Well, we want you to be able to follow along, so if you don't have a Bible, these brothers have some, they're going to make their way to the back, so get their attention as they do, and you can turn to Genesis chapter 1 and follow along with us. And we also supply each week an outline inserted in your program so that you can follow along there as well. I encourage you to take that out if you don't have it already. It's rightly said that first impressions are lasting. If you're a guest here, then once again we welcome you. And even though I haven't met you, I hope to do that before the end of today, even though I haven't met you, I already know something about you. I know that you, like all of us do, have been making assessments about our church from the very moment that you pulled in the parking lot Perhaps even before you decided to come when you looked at our website. You're forming impressions about who we are and how we do things so that you can know whether this is a place and people with whom you might want to associate. You've gained an impression of us from the order of and in the service and through the musical presentation. And I tell you that you're forming an impression and so you're also forming an impression of me. First impressions are first, and they are lasting as well. I came upon a conversation just yesterday with a couple of men in our church at Emily's Open House. They were discussing the first time that they came to CBC and what their first impressions were. Now, when we read of God's creative activity in the first chapter of the Bible, we're getting first impressions of God and how it is that He does things. Now, I should say that when we read of God, it's never really our very first impression because the truth is we know something of him from just looking at creation. We know something of his power and majesty and beauty. But it's only in the special revelation of the Bible that we get to know God more fully. And that begins with our first impression in the very first chapter. The story of creation shows us some extremely important things about God at the very outset of the Bible story. And this is good because since first impressions are lasting, those impressions are also foundational. They often establish the foundation of a relationship that's built upon for years to come. The foundation laid in the opening chapters of the Bible will be built upon in the 65 books that comprise God's word thereafter. And that's why it's so very important for us to learn about God as we look at his work of creation in the beginning. So let's ask God to help us as we further look at Genesis chapter 1 in our message today. Lord, we thank you for allowing us to be here, to gather in this sacred moment, to open your word, to see your character revealed there, and then the necessary changes that that makes incumbent upon us. Help us to have minds that are alert and hearts that are open to become more like you because as we will see, that is what you have made us to be. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now one author compares the first five days of creation to the construction of a great mansion that's being constructed in orderly phases. The purpose is fulfilled only when the inhabitants for whom that mansion is exquisitely prepared actually move into it. And that's what God has been doing in the first five days of Today, we're going to look at day number six, but he's been preparing this mansion, as it were, for the inhabitants for whom it was designed to be able to move into it. In fact, the Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 45, this is what the Lord says He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but he formed it to be inhabited we have been over the last several weeks together documenting God's in phases, stages, preparing the earth for its ultimate inhabitants. And that is, as we will see, humanity. And it begins back in verse two of chapter one that tells us that the earth at its original inception was formless and it was was empty. And God remedies that by first giving and then filling, giving form and then filling the emptiness that was the earth. And so I pointed out to you that days 1 through 3 of creation are forming and days 4 through 6 are are filling and they correspond to one another in pairs. Day 1 compares to day 4, day 2 to day 5, day 3 to day 6. It was on day 1 that God created light. And on day 4, He created the sun, the moon, the stars in which light is formed on that first day. That light that was formed on the first day is crystallized. On day two, you may recall, God created the sea and sky. And we saw last week that on day five, he fills both the sea and the sky with fish and birds, respectively. And on day three, he created the land, the dry land and the plants. And today we're going to see on day six, God forms the land creatures and humanity. Now, sometimes you might hear someone say, you know that he loves her by, and then they fill in the blank of something That he does for her. Or you know that she loves him by something that you observe about what it is they do. You know that God cares for his creation by the care that he's shown in the very first chapter of the Bible in providing the needs for the creatures that he has made and in particular his highest creature, that of man. But I have to mention that to you because post fall, after sin has entered God's otherwise good world, We have to be reminded that this God is indeed a God who cares and loves us because it is not as it was originally designed to be. There are so many things that distort the picture, even though even in the post-fall creation, we can see the greatness and majesty and goodness of our God. And so we need to go back to the beginning and then go back and forth to, one, see God's original design but then also see how the subsequent decline of humanity and God's world because of sin has affected the way that we see it. And so I encourage you to take a look at the outline, in which I want us to see today from Genesis 1, first of all, that God provides. God provides resources. God provides resources. Verse 24 of Genesis 1. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. The livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. So on day six, at the beginning of day six, God creates the land animals, the living creatures. And these living creatures are divided into three basic sorts. And then these three sorts of animals are included then all of the animals on earth. That means that God did not create every particular kind, but rather he created kinds that over time through speciation would create the various varieties that the earth has, that have been produced. And these three sorts are these. They are livestock mentioned in verse 24. That is, that is moving creatures whom, God, whom man can domesticate or tame. Living creatures. moving, and, and that includes the livestock that are moving creatures that can be domesticated or tamed. And then verse 24 speaks of the creatures that move along the ground. That's small creatures that creep about on the ground or even big animals that have no legs or very short legs. They appear to be walking on their bellies. And then the third category is the wild animals. And these are four-legged creatures that... Cannot be domesticated or tamed. Now, prior to the fall, it's assumed that the animals were tame. They weren't coming after man. They weren't going to be coming after man and killing, killing man. But they were still large and they were unruly in the sense of man being able to domesticate them, uh, even though they were tame prior to the fall. Now, we're going to see when we get to Genesis chapter three, sin enters the world. It there's a sea change in the environment in which man is now called to serve God. And that includes a change in the animal world as, as well. And so that's why these are called then the, the wild creatures. And the land is filled by animals now that can reproduce. On day six, God creates these higher animals whose bodies most resemble men and whose presence is necessary to enable man to fulfill the tasks that he's going to be given. We're going to see what those tasks are. But in order for man to be able to do that, he's going to have to be resourced. And at the beginning of day six, God gives the resources necessary for man to carry out the work that's going to be assigned to him. So horses and oxen for labor and cattle for milk. So please understand, friends, that out of this, we're getting first impressions of God. We're seeing how God works. And you will see throughout scripture that God works this way, that most often God equips and resources before he assigns tasks. God equipped Adam before he even made up. He had the stage set, as it were, for Adam to be able to have all that he needed to carry out what would be assigned it to him. So the ability and the supplies are already given, and so it's easy for us to forget who gave it. If God provides miraculously, then it's obvious. But if God provides, as he most often does, providentially, He prepares the table, as it were, ahead of the task. We can easily forget that we could not do the task assigned to us, that we could not do anything without God's prior gift. And that's why in your New Testament, the Bible says this. First Corinthians chapter four. Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? And so God is preparing to make man later on day six. But in that preparation, he gives him all that he's going to need, the resources he's going to need to carry out his task. He does the same thing for you and for me. And in fact, the Lord does this for all creation. He has made it carefully and deliberately, and he cares for it. The psalmist says in Psalm 145 that was read earlier, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. The eyes of all look to you. And you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. And we see God doing that. If you look down in verse 29, verse 29 of chapter 1, where it says, Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. And so right at the very beginning, God resources his creation. He provides all that's necessary for it and them to carry out their assigned tasks. Now, just as a quick aside, you notice it's every plant that they are able to eat. At the beginning, both men and animals were herbivorous, not carnivorous. That is, they were vegetarian diet and not a meat-eating diet. And we're going to see after the fall in Genesis chapter 3 that changes for the animals. And then after the flood in Genesis chapter 9, God gives permission for man to, to eat meat. But at the very beginning, it was this vegetarian diet. But God provides all the resources that they need. Now, these animals, I said are these three sorts, the wild animals that are not tamed, not domesticated, those that creep on the ground, the, the cattle, all of these that make up these moving creatures with the breath of life in them, that they are in these three categories and they include all of the animals that God made. That includes dinosaurs. Now, I don't have time to talk about dinosaurs much, but I just want to say that because some of you have the false notion that the Bible knows nothing about dinosaurs. Well, listen, if God's the creator, God knows everything about dinosaurs. God created dinosaurs. We will see later in our study of the book of Genesis that they uh, became extinct, but God created them, and he created them on on day day number six. And the Bible actually, I'm convinced, references dinosaurs. And if you're interested in that, I encourage you to read Job chapter 40 in your Bible. Job chapter 40. In Job chapter forty there describes a creature Behemoth, that is none other than a description of a dinosaur. Now God provides resources then, for the task that He gives to His creatures, and in particular man. But with the fall, scarcity becomes an issue and so it is not guaranteed today that people will always have the resources that they need now i'm going to venture just for a minute into the political world at my own risk and i'm going to offend a bunch of you here by agreeing with president obama but never fear only for like 30 seconds okay and now i've made some of the rest of you mad this is a fool's errand isn't it but you remember in the 2012 campaign that at one point uh, the president had given a speech and he had said, you know, I always get amused about these people who say they built a business. And they sort of scoffs and says, you didn't build that. And then he talks about all the contributions that went into that in order for you to be able to do whatever it was you did. And the Republicans used that as a great theme at their uh, convention. And that speaker after speaker came up and said, Mr. President, yes, we did build that. And they would talk about all they did. Well, I'm going to agree with the president, at least in part. You didn't build that is correct. If you figure God into the equation, because apart from Him, you would not have the resources to build anything. You would not be able to do anything. Now, where I disagree with the president, mildly, he said tongue in cheek, uh, is that it is not the government who provides for us; it is God Almighty who provides for us. Now, I have to make choices with the options that are available to me, available to me, and those options may be severely limited. For some, And so to say you are what you choose, as some of us, even as Christians, will harshly say to other people who are less fortunate, have fallen on difficult times, Hey, you are what you choose. You made your bed, now you lie in it. Don't make excuses. And that can easily become a sort of an arrogance that overlooks the truth that there are many choices that are made for you prior to you ever choosing anything. If God doesn't resource you, you don't do a thing. And what he provided by creation in the beginning, he provides now by recreation afterwards. What he produced by miracle then, he makes by providence and secondary causes now. God provides resources. And he shows that at the very beginning of his creation. Secondly, in your outline, God provides ability. God provides resources, but God provides ability. Verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so here are those three categories again. And God says, let us make man and man is going to rule over these creatures that that I have made. Now, there's a difference here in verse 26 in how God pronounces his intention now to create man. He, said as, he says, let us make. And in the prior days of creation, in God's prior work of uh, creative activity, he brought things into existence by his command, let there be, which is an impersonal form of the same verb that's used here in verse 26. But now, with the creation of man alone, God's emphasizing His deliberation within Himself. Let us make. Now, of course, God planned all that He has made, and that planning requires, of course, thinking. But God is here emphasizing that mankind is no afterthought, but is instead the deliberate creation of our rational Creator God. Let us make. Now, why is He emphasizing that at the outside of creating outside of creating humanity? Well, let me just say it's not in order to teach us about the Trinity. Now, some of you might look to this passage and say when it says, let us make man in our image, that that is God teaching the Trinity. But we only know about the Trinity from later revelation in your Bible. In this first chapter and those who were the first, the early recipients of this revelation and later when it was committed to writing would have really known nothing about the Trinity. So just let me talk about that for a moment, and whether or not this is a statement of the Trinity, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. It's true, as I've said, that we know from later Revelation the New Testament that God, the Son, was the agent of creation. John chapter 1 says, by him, that is, by, by Christ, were all things created. And verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1 introduces us to the Spirit of God when it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And the Father, Son, and Spirit have existed, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, for all eternity, so that they were there and they were all part of creation. But this verse is emphasizing God's thought, not his plurality. You can't prove the Trinity from from this verse alone, for sure. The rest of the Old Testament does not emphasize the threeness of God, but rather the, the unity of God, the oneness of God. I think the great Princeton theologian, Benjamin Warfield, said it well. He said, the times were not ripe for the revelation of the Trinity in the unity of the Godhead until the fullness of time had come for God to send forth his son and his spirit for sanctification. Now, hear this. The revelation in word must wait upon the revelation in fact. And so God says, let us. But he's emphasizing with this creation, there is something particularly special going on with the creation of man, with the creation of humanity. And the word that's used in verse 26 for image meant something cut from an object. So, for example, a piece of clay cut from a sculpture. In that case, there's a resemblance between the object and the image. We're made in God's image because we were made to resemble God, but also to represent God. And this word for image is also used of a statue, of a king, that he would erect of himself as a symbol of his sovereignty. And so the idea here is that God is sovereign over all he has made, but he has made man to represent his sovereignty over creation. Now I say in your outline that God provides ability and humanity is able, I say in your outline, to do a couple of things. The first is to reflect God. Humanity is able to reflect God. We were made in the image of God, which means we were made to resemble God, made to be like God. Now, how? How am I like God? How are you like God? Well, all of us as humanity made in the image of God have both a moral and a personal resemblance to God. A moral and a personal resemblance to God. I'll explain that. But the image does not refer to a physical resemblance. Because God is spirit and does not, have, does not have a body. But our moral resemblance to God is seen in that mankind was created in a state of moral purity and he possesses the ability to discern right and wrong. The image of God in the fall, the entrance of sin that, into the world that we'll see in Genesis 3, it marred that image, but it was not obliterated. It was, as some have said, effaced, but it was not erased we were made then to reflect God's character back to God. And we alone, humanity, among all of God's creation, have the ability to do this because we've been made in the image of God. We can reflect God back to God. And in fact, God's objective in delivering us from sin, in sending God the Son to be the sacrifice for our sin, is this, that we would be, according to Romans chapter 8, conformed to the image of his Son. Now, there are all sorts of ways that application could be made of this. Time does not permit. But let me just say, friends, that when we read the opening chapter of the Bible, if you understand all of its implications, then it will explain the headlines in your newspaper every day and every week. You see, you read of atrocities that are committed. You you read of crime. You, You are concerned, as any of us are, at where our culture is headed. And you read that and you wonder, what are the roots of all of that? Well, the roots go back to the very beginning. They go back to the fact that we were made in the image of God and we were made to reflect God back to God. But hear this, when people do not reflect God back to God, when they do not live as they were designed to be, then they live like animals. And then you see the kinds of things that happen in our world. God's word explains our world always. And so humanity is able, has the ability to reflect God's character back to God. But secondly, I say in your outline, humanity is able to relate to God. We're able to reflect God, but we're able to relate to God. Verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And said to them. Now I said that we were made to resemble God morally, but we are also made to resemble God personally, and here's where you see that personal aspect. God made us as persons as He God is a person. Now here's what that means. That we like God have the components of personality. And here's what they are: mind and will and emotion. Mind, will, and emotion. We have been made by God in his image with the capacity To think and to act and to feel. We are persons as God is a person. And therefore, we alone among God's creation are able to relate to God person to person. And this is why it's only humanity among God's creation with whom he communicates personally. Notice again verse 28. God blessed them and said, now notice these two words, to them. That's different from the other creatures where God would say something about them, it's only here with humanity that God says to them. Humanity alone, made in the image of God, is able to communicate person to person, not only with God, but also with one another. And so male and female, he created them with this capacity to communicate to one another. Again, all kinds of implications of this. Let me just give you a couple. One is the image of God in man means in all of humanity. Eliminates racism and sexism. The problems that we have with racism and sexism that we've had for millennia, the problems that we've had with that go back to not understanding the original creation. You see, if you understand that all humanity, male and female, whatever color, ethnicity, whatever we are, we are all made in the image of God, then it eliminates racism and sexism. It eliminates racism because we have all originated from one man. The great apostle Paul, when he was speaking to the Greek philosophers in Athens Greece, he said to them in Acts chapter 17, from one man he made all. That means we are all related. And not only are we all related, we are all blood relatives having come from one man and one woman. If you understand, man made in the image of God, God's special creation of humanity. We are all special and we are all equally special before God in that image-bearing capacity. It eliminates racism. I can't camp out on that. Man, there's just so much, so much to say, so little time. But listen, I'll just say to you as directly but as lovingly as I can. If you have racist terminology, if you have racist thoughts, you're going to need to take that somewhere else or repent. That's not what the Bible teaches. And therefore, it's not the way we roll here. It eliminates racism. It eliminates sexism as well. As I stated on Mother's Day last year, Identity comes before roles. We most often focus between men and women on the distinctive roles that God has assigned to male and female. That's true. We're going to see that in chapter 2. But before we ever get to the roles in chapter 2, God declares both male and female equally made in the image of God. And then in salvation in Christ, this is what the Bible says in Galatians 3, there is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. God gives us humanity made in his image, the ability to communicate, to communicate to him and receive communication from him and to relate to to one another. And that communication is foundational to relationship. It's not that communicating ability is not first for the purpose. Hear this of me telling you what you can do for me (laughs) or pointing out to you all the times that you mess up. That's what we think our communication abilities for. So that I can get a message to you. Here's what you need to do for me. And here's how many times you mess up in not doing it for me. That's not what it's for. It is the means, hear this, by which I get to know you. And therefore, know best how I can love you. And this communicating ability. Where God communicates us propositionally in a book. Where we can get to know God and better know how we can love God. And we can communicate to one another and better know how we can love one another. Friends, God, as we see in this opening chapter, provides us resources, the resources we need and the ability we need to carry out, notice thirdly, our purpose. God provides resources and ability and thirdly, purpose. He says in verse 28, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This is sometimes called the dominion mandate mandate, a command, and it's a command to have dominion over the the creation. One commentator said only because mankind was created in the image of God was it appropriate to grant him the awesome responsibility of dominion over the entire created order. And in this verse, it tells us that dominion is going to be carried out in two ways to subdue and to to rule. Subdue and rule are used only of humanity, though back in verse 22 of chapter one, it is said of the fish and the birds. It is said that they, too, are to to multiply And be fruitful and to fill, but it is only said of humanity that it is to subdue and to rule. Now here's what that means, two things in your outline. Humanity is to explore God's world, explore God's world. This word subdue in verse 28 refers to the cultivation and manipulation of the land to suit mankind's purposes. And that requires, as we're going to see, that we explore God's world. We subdue it by exploring it, cultivating and manipulating the land to suit mankind's purpose. Now, if you're not careful, if you take all of this out of context, you could say, well, then we can just sort of rape the earth and we can treat it without regard as stewards, managers for for God. And some have done that. Nothing could be further from the truth. This does not imply devastation or destruction, but rather care for the earth, But we explore the earth in order to use it as God's representatives on earth. And you have an example of that in chapter 2. Just take a look in chapter 2 and verse 15. Chapter 2 and verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to do this, to work it and take care of it. This task of subduing then implies that dominion mandate calls us to study the created order. Now, one commentator, Jonathan Sarfati, he is a creation scientist. He's written a massive volume that's just come out. In fact, it's just been published. And uh, I was able to get a copy of that, and it's been extremely helpful. Um, And it's just called The Genesis Account, The Genesis Account. But in it, he teases out all of the implications of virtually everything that's said in this opening chapter of of the Bible. But one of the things he does in that book is he says that the Christian view of the created order laid the foundation for the possibility of scientific inquiry. And let me tell you some of what he says. He says there are certain essential features that make science possible, and they simply did not exist in non-Christian cultures. And then he lists some of them, that a Christian worldview teaches that there is such a thing as objective truth. And that has to be at the foundation of scientific inquiry, that there is such a thing as objective truth. Postmodernism says you cannot know truth. And so that then raises the question, well, then how do you know that? How do you know you can't know truth if you can't know truth? But anyway, there is such a thing as objective truth. He also says that the Christian worldview teaches that the universe is real. Now, that may seem obvious, but some Eastern philosophies believe that everything is an illusion. And so that raises the question, is the belief that everything is an illusion, itself an illusion? But there's no point in experimenting on something if, in fact, it's an illusion. But the biblical worldview teaches that, indeed, the universe is not an illusion, it's real. The biblical worldview also teaches that the universe is orderly. 17th century scientist Johannes Kepler who's often regarded as the father of modern astronomy, wrote this. The chief aim of all investigations of the external world should be to discover the rational order and harmony which has been imposed on it by God. Why should there be a trustworthy, unchanging laws if we are absent a trustworthy, non-capricious and unchanging law-giving creator? A fundamental facet of science is deriving laws that provide for predictable outcomes. And that's only possible if the universe is orderly. And that only comes from a biblical worldview. And lastly, a biblical worldview teaches the universe is not divine. God is not in the stuff that God made. The universe is not divine, so man can and should investigate it. We don't need to sacrifice to the forest God in order to cut down a tree. We don't have to appease the water spirits in order to measure the boiling point of water. But that comes from a biblical worldview. So humanity is to explore God's world. Secondly, humanity is to shape God's world. Explore it, shape it. Subdue it and rule it. This word for rule indicates humanity's preeminence over all other living creatures. And their ability, humanity's ability to control and to harness all of those other living creatures. And you see an example of this as well in chapter 2. Again, I call your attention to chapter 2 and verse 19. We get to chapter 2. We're going to see that God paraded the animals before Adam, two by two. And here's what the Bible says. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Now, the reason that that was so important is it showed that mankind had this ruling ability over the animal world. When you name something as God named Adam, and then, by the way, Adam named Eve, as we'll see in chapter 2, then that implies authority over the person or thing named. And that's what God is doing here, showing the authority of, of Adam, his rulership, his dominion over the animal kingdom and this involved the scientific task of classifying in an appropriate manner the animals and so this task requires that man articulate the meaning of the world that he's exploring and shape it in a direction that's pleasing to god according to one commentator now what does all that mean to you and me and we'll move on well it means a lot of things but here's one thing it should mean understand dear friends that we were made with the highest calling among all of god's creatures We were made with purpose. We are made to subdue God's world and to rule God's world in the dominion mandate. We are made to be God's representatives on earth over all of his creatures. Now, here's what that practically means to you and me. Somebody comes up to you and says, so what's going on? What's your immediate response? Same old. Nothing much. Did you know with a human being made in the image of God, called to subdue and rule, there is no such thing as same old and nothing much? (laughs) The truth is, there's a ton of eternal value that's going on with us. And this gives us, if rightly understood, a perspective on everything that we do that says right now counts forever. Everything that I'm doing, I'm doing on behalf of God and to fulfill God's purposes. Every day when I emerge from the gift of sleep and rest, I emerge knowing that God has called me to this new day to rule and subdue on his behalf. Christians and God's image bearers have that purpose. It gives meaning then to secular work. Tomorrow, many of you are going to go to work. Many of you are going to go to school. The fact that God has called us to this task as humanity to subdue and to rule on his behalf gives meaning to all of that activity. We Christians get the idea that things only have spiritual meaning if we have a prayer meeting before we do it. Or if we have a devotional study before we do it. Every activity of an image bearer of God is to be done on his behalf, whatever it is. God provides resources. God provides ability. Purpose, lastly. God provides perfection. God provides perfection. I'll tell you why I say that in just a moment. But in verse 31, at the end of verse 31, it says, And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. And I want to point something out about that phrase, the sixth day, the way in which the numbering of this day is announced is unique among the six days of creation. Though for each of the other's days, it says at the end of that particular day, there was evening and there was morning, the first day, the second day, and so on. In Hebrew, the word the T-H-E is not there. It's supplied by the English translators. Some translations say there was evening and there was morning a first day, a second day, a third day, because, in fact, the word the is not is not there. This final day of creation is the only one in which it is literally said the sixth day. And the reason for this is probably to set apart the sixth day as something special, a culmination of creation that reaches its climax in the formation of of mankind, of humanity. Everything in the prior five days, and even on the first part of this sixth day, the creation of animals, all of it has been leading up to God's crowning achievement, humanity. And now that mankind has been made, creation is finished, and God signifies that it's finished by saying at the end of verse 31, notice, end of verse 31, when God saw all that he had made, And it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, there's a little more here in that line than we see in English. Literally, it says in Hebrew God saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. The NIV that most of you have in front of you doesn't have, and behold, before it was very good, but literally it's there, behold, it was very good. And that Hebrew word serves to call attention to the statement that follows. It was very good. God's saying, and now, watch this. I want you to understand this. Now that I've finished all of this, it is very good. For all of the other days, God would end that day by pronouncing what He has made as good. Verse 4 says, And God saw that the light was good. Verses 9, 12, 18, 20, and 23, they all say, And God saw that it was good. Saying that of the particular thing that he made. But at the end of day 6, God looked on all he had made. The totality of physical creation and says it's very good. It's perfect in every minute detail. Now why is it perfect? Because it reflects its intention. It is complete. And as I said at the beginning, we're getting first impressions about God. And how God works and what God's objectives are. And friends, God is still in the process of working all things to their completion. God is still making all things perfect by making all things new. In the words of the theme verse for our church, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28, here's what it says. He, Christ, is the one we proclaim. Admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature, that is perfect, complete in Christ. And God is engaged in redeeming his fallen creation in order to restore it back to its original perfection. That includes the humanity he made to rule and represent him. He's at work in perfecting us. And he's at work in perfecting it as well. And that's why John was given the privilege of seeing the vision of a new heaven and a new earth. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And this will be a time when God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Now, what's all that mean for us then? We've got these six days of creation culminating on the sixth day with the creation of man and God says and behold now it is complete. It is designed to carry out my intention for it. It is very good. And God did all of that so that we his image bearers would reflect and rule and represent for him. I say in your take home truth. God has created in order to be imitated. God has created to be imitated. God has created us to reflect him back to him. He's given us the resources we need to do that. But because of the entrance of sin, we no longer fulfill our purpose. Next week, if you come with us, we are going to build upon what we just saw in Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 2. Next week, Hebrews chapter 2 verses 5 through 9. Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. I encourage you to read ahead of time in preparation for that. Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. The writer of Hebrews talks about the implications of the fact that humanity is not fulfilling its intended purpose and what God has done about that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you again for this sacred time together to open your word. And to see therein you revealed. You made known to us. Father, we thank you that you've given us the special revelation of the Bible. So that we can know about you. Know about your character. Know about your ways. Know about your intentions and your purposes. And in particular, to know why you have placed us here. Thank you for the clarity of your word. Telling us that we alone among your creation are made in your image. And that image is not to be Not to be harmed. That image is to be is to be cherished. And the purpose for that image is to be fulfilled. And you've given us that purpose to subdue and to rule. So that every moment of every day matters for eternity. For those of us who are your image bearers and are being re-imaged. To be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh Father, what great blessings these are. And so help us now to go this week. And to ponder these things and how the dominion mandate to rule for you and to represent you and to reflect you in every activity of life, how that affects us as we go to school tomorrow, as we go to work tomorrow, as we serve our families in our homes. Oh, Lord, help us to be a body. Help us to be a church. Help us to be a people that brings glory to you by showing you back to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.